Early Sunday morning, roughly 2,000 years ago, three women made their way to a cemetery right outside Jerusalem. They hoped to find the lifeless body of Jesus Christ accessible to them so that they could honor him by anointing his body with ointments. The week leading up to that Sunday had been quite eventful. As always, during the Passover festival, Jerusalem was teeming with people. But this festival had been particularly eventful because it was riddled with controversy. There were people claiming that Jesus was the Messiah, the deliverer of Israel. He'd been performing miracles. People have been healed, some even raised from the dead. And the number of his followers was growing rapidly. Well, eventually, the religious leaders in Jerusalem uh, could no longer stand it. They were threatened by Jesus' growing popularity. He didn't conform to their religious expectations. And so, on Friday, they conspired with the Romans to crucify him on a cross like a common criminal. And so that Sunday morning, these women went to the tomb sad, dashed hopes. They loved Jesus. He was a great man, a great teacher, a prophet of God, but not the deliverer they had hoped for. But rather than find the lifeless body of Jesus Christ, they found an empty tomb. And two angels who asked them, why do you seek the living amongst the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. I love that last line. And they remembered his words. What do you think that remembering felt like? I think it went something like this. Yeah, we remember, wait a second. You mean he wasn't speaking metaphorically? When he said he's going to rise again after three days, what, he's talking literally? Like he was going to come out of the grave? He was going to come back to life? His body would be pulsing again with, with life? Get that? No way. Is that real? Well, wait a second, if he was being literal about that, well, then when he talked to Nicodemus and said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, was he being literal then? Could he, wait, when he said that all who follow him live, does he mean that we're going to actually conquer death? And on that morning... Hope was born in the hearts of these women. A hope unlike they'd ever have had before. The hope of eternal life. The hope of resurrection from the dead. Easter hope. 
a hope that later the apostle Peter coined living hope. It is the hope of Easter. It's the hope that we proclaim today, and it is the hope that animates the life of every follower of Jesus Christ. And if you're here that this morning and you have never experienced that hope, man, I hope you don't leave without it. Turn in your Bibles, if you would, to 1 Peter chapter 1. This is our core text for this morning. And in this text, Peter talks about this living hope. And I'm going to start by reading verses 3 through 9, and then we're going to go back through the text more slowly and unpack its meaning and its significance for our lives. 1 Peter chapter 1, starting in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guided through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Now the first thing... I want us to see here is that we are born again into this living hope. If you want Easter hope in your life, you must be born again. According to his great mercy, verse 3, he, God, has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, if you're uh, new to Christianity, then this will most likely seem uh, strange to you. What do you mean I have to be born again? Don't feel bad. The first person Jesus told this to also was confused. And his name was Nicodemus, and we read about him in John chapter 3. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Why did he come by night? Because Jesus was a controversial figure, and Nicodemus didn't want people to know he'd been talking to Jesus. Rabbi, We know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered. So, by the way, Nicodemus, you know, you're obviously from God. I want a relationship with God. What can you teach me? Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? He's confused. Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, 
he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So Jesus is saying, look, you want a relationship with God. You want heaven to be your uh, final destiny. You got to be born two times. First, you have to be born of a woman. You got to be human. And secondly, you've got to be born again by the spirit of God. You have to become a spiritual man. And so if you want Easter hope, it begins with being born again. Has the Spirit of God regenerated your spirit and made you his child? Does the Spirit of God indwell you? That's where it begins, and uh, at the end I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about how that happens and give you an invitation to do that even this morning. Second thing I want to point out is that uh, hope is grounded on Jesus rising from the dead. He's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. It is Christ's resurrection that accomplished the defeat of death. When Jesus burst forth out of the grave, death lost its grip on us. All of a sudden, death had no more power to hold us if we became followers of Jesus. But it also means that our hope, we have reason to hope. See, Christian hope isn't just wishful thinking. We are just not better than other people at deluding ourselves, right? Boy, I certainly hope I'm going to live someday. We're not just experts at, at kind of deluding ourselves in the face of facts. No, we have reason to believe that we will rise from the dead because Jesus already did it. Amen. And if he did it, and what did our memory verse say? If he did it by the power of the Spirit of God and that same Spirit indwells us, then that same Spirit's going to bring life to our mortal bodies. Let me read that again, Romans 8, 11. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead, so who, who bought, brought Christ to life, the Spirit of God, dwells in you, which he does if you're a Christian, that's one of the... Uh, the signs of being a Christian is the Spirit of God indwells us. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. And Jesus promised that uh, those who are my followers will themselves rise again from the dead. The Bible says that Jesus is merely the first fruits of the resurrection, which is a, an agricultural um, metaphor, first fruits, right? You, you kind of have the early harvest and you, you grab it. That's called the first fruits. And it demonstrates that the soil is good and you can fully expect that there's going to come a much greater harvest right after that. And so in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 22, we read, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. And so, this hope is not just pie in the sky, wishful thinking. This hope is grounded on a historical fact, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have reason to hope today. 
third thing I see in this text about this living hope is that it, it springs from what awaits us in heaven. In other words, there is content to our hope. We are hoping in something very specific, and it's, it's heaven. It's this wonderful future that awaits us. Verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. If you're a Christian, your best days are before you. In heaven, there is an inheritance awaiting you. You will come into your inheritance, which means that it's not until this life is over and you are in eternity that life will, for you will enter its fullness. And what kind of an inheritance it is. It's imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. It's imperishable, which means it lasts forever. Heaven is forever, without end. It's undefiled, which means there will be no pollutant uh, reducing its, its beauty. There won't be pain. There won't be relational brokenness. There won't be suffering of any sort. There won't be sickness. There won't be failure. It will just be good, 100% good, without any defilement. And it is unfading. Which means 10,000 years after you get to heaven, you're just as excited about it as you are on the very first day. It is not subject to the law of diminishing returns. It's going to be awesome every day for all eternity. Now, if you believe this, that kind of hope animates your life every single day. And that's the fourth point. That this hope eclipses present difficulties. Look at verse 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. And Peter is writing to Christians who are currently undergoing persecution from the state for being Christians. So they are experiencing trials there. Some of them are in prison. Some of them have been killed. Jesus never said, uh, I'm going to protect you from everything bad. In fact, he says, in this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, for I have overcome the world. Or as Peter says, even when you're in the midst of the, of the trial, and trials can be of various kinds, sickness, relational brokenness, uh, poverty, you know, there are many types of trials, but, even, but when the Christian is in the trial, even in the midst of the trial, we rejoice. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. Why? Because the future in front of you is awesome. And set your minds on, on what's coming, which is what Paul encourages us to do in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, where he writes, For this light momentary affliction, and by the way, he says it's a light momentary affliction when he's comparing it to what's coming, but Paul experienced some pretty significant hardship. 
It's preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. In other words, no matter how bad it gets in this world, remember, it's just for an instant. And compared to what's coming, can't even compare it. As we look, not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Elsewhere, we're told the real you is hidden in heaven, in, with Christ in, in heaven. That's the real you. Finally, I see this. Living hope is entered into and sustained by faith. Verse 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you don't see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible and filled with glory. See, the Christian hope is entered into and sustained by faith. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 6, we are told, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. How do we enter into this hope? We enter in by faith. We believe God's promises as uh, told us in his word. And we believe that that uh, we too will rise from the dead because Jesus rose from the dead. And so look, you're here this morning, you know whether or not you have faith. And if you don't have faith, Jesus invites you to have faith. But to as many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. If you believe, God will honor your faith with forgiveness of sins, the indwelling of his Holy Spirit, and life everlasting. And so, do you believe? I think there are three types of people here this morning. Uh, those who, who have not yet put their faith in Jesus Christ, so they don't yet have faith. And there's another group there. They're Christians, but their faith is weak. And the weaker your faith... The, the, the weaker your hope. And then there are Christians here who are absolutely convinced and their lives are animated tremendously by this Easter hope. And uh, let me speak just briefly to the first two groups. I have this book called The Case for Christ by Lee Strobel. And um, if, you, if you are want to believe, but you need evidence, and you don't want to, you know, just jump in, would you please come see me after the service? I want to get this book freely into your hands, uh, and it makes the case for Christ, and there's a section in here on the resurrection from the dead. Um, also, if you are a believer, but you are um, struggling in your faith, you feel weak in your faith, please, I want to get this uh, into your hands. Sabrina and I recently got back from India. Uh, we spent a couple of weeks there, tremendous trip, and a, the most meaningful part of the trip, of course, is always the people. And we met some amazing brothers and sisters in Christ, and we look forward to uh, hanging out with them uh, in heaven for all of eternity. 
There was one young man, though, 30 years old, and his name is Salim, and I want to tell you uh, his story briefly. Sabrina and I spent uh, a full week with him, uh, very close quarters, and uh, he was kind of our guide. And so we pulled out during the week Salim's story. Salim said, I grew up in a Hindu family. My father was an alcoholic and an angry alcoholic. He forced my mother to drink. He didn't want to drink alone. And when he would get drunk, he, he was uh, mean. And one of the things he would do sometimes is get his buddies together, and they would go to the local Christian church, uh, and they would go in and they would beat the Christians while they were worshiping. He thought that was a good thing. One day, as he was walking to work, the terror of the Lord descended upon him. And he, he did not know what to do. He was absolutely terrified that he was going to die and go to hell. And in his, he just turned around and in his fear, he sprinted back into the town. He went right to the church. He bursts in, winded, and, and he sees the Christians on their faces crying out audibly for his salvation. And instantly he said, okay, <laughs> I want to become a Christian. He converts. And his life begins to change, and his wife witnesses it, and so she too becomes a Christian. A little time went on, and uh, Salim's father receives a vision from the Lord. And in the vision, God tells him to go to a very particular village. He sees the village. Go to this village and preach the gospel. And Salim was only six years old. He was the youngest of five children. And so my dad said, we're, we're headed out. And uh, Salim said, we were very poor, so we didn't, we didn't have much to take with us. Uh, and so we walked to the village, and we arrived in the middle of the night. And the next morning, mom and dad went into the village center, and they began to preach the gospel. When the elders of the village realized what was happening, they incited a, a riot, and they beat my mom and dad uh, very badly and tossed them into a field and it took them a few days to uh, recover physically enough to crawl back to us. And so as kids, we're just, we don't know what to do. The elders kicked the family out of the village. You cannot be in the village. And so we, we went a little bit outside the village and we began to live under a tree. And we had nothing. Every once in a while, a villager would take compassion on us and bring us some rice, a little bit of food, so we could live. My dad was a good singer, and so in the mornings, he would go out to the road, and as the villagers walked to work, my dad would sing gospel songs over them. And multiple times, mom and dad would go into the village and try to preach the gospel, and they'd get beat up, and they'd be thrown into the field, and then a few days later, they'd crawl back. And meanwhile, as kids, we were just trying to survive under the tree. But eventually, there was a woman in the village who uh, was sick, and nearing death. And the villagers had exhausted the prayers to the Hindu gods and, and the medical care that they had available. And so they brought the woman to mom and dad and said, if you can heal this woman, we will believe. You keep claiming your God is the most powerful. And Salim's mom and dad said, uh, we cannot heal, but Jesus can. We will pray and he will, will heal this woman. And he did, miraculous healing. The entire village became Christians. Instantly. Salim's parents stayed just long enough to raise up some leaders and start a church, and they went on. They've now evangelized almost 80 different villages in India. 
Thousands upon thousands of people have put their faith in Christ and been, been baptized. Salim said, when I was in fifth grade, I hated God. I did not like this missionary life. As we're driving around in, in India, lots of striation in society, uh, but there is some pretty abject poverty. And Salim pointed and he said, uh, I grew up in the slums. That's where I lived, with uh, the mud huts with the blue tarped roof. That was my childhood. Many times I remember there was absolutely nothing to eat. Mom would boil water and she would tell us to bring our plates and we'd bring our, our little bowls uh, and she would fill it with boiled water. And we were so hungry, I would cry and the tears would fall into my water and that's what we would eat. By the time I was in fifth grade, two of my siblings had, had died from complications uh, from abject poverty, my brother and one of my sister's. And to me, this was a joke. I'm like, we, we supposedly serve the most powerful God in the universe. He can't feed us and he can't keep us alive. I am not okay with this. But he was bored and his dad had a few books. And one of the books was uh, a book about missionaries who had come to India with the gospel. And he read that book and he said it was when I got to the story of William Carey, the Englishman who came to India with the gospel, and he lost children, and he lost wives, and he suffered greatly. He said, all of a sudden it clicked, and I understood. It is love that compels my parents to be missionaries. It is love that compels them to make the sacrifice. They love God, and they love the people that God has died to save. And he said, my heart changed. And all of a sudden, I, I was for it. <laughs> and I began, I began to love God. I began to love the gospel. I was proud of my parents. Salim said, we went on to lose another one of my siblings. Uh, she came home one day and said, God gave me a vision that I'm going to die soon, but I want you to know it's okay. I know where I'm going. And the next day, she just died. So now he's left with one, one sister. Sabrina asked him, Salim, how, how did your parents grapple with the loss of three of their children on the mission field? And he said, there is only one thing that makes that kind of a loss acceptable. It's the thousands upon thousands of people who will be in heaven because of my parents' sacrifice, because of our sacrifice as a family. And that's worth it. It was worth it to my siblings. It's worth it to my parents. It's worth it to me. So this, this is a family whose hope is not in this world, right? It's not what they can get in, in the here and now. Their hope is set on what? On the inheritance that is coming to them. And they have God's love uh, coursing through their lives so that they're willing to sacrifice so that others can have that inheritance too. That's the power of Easter hope. And, that, and that's, what, that's the kind of hope that God wants to animate the lives of all people. He wants that to be animating your life and my life. Please don't leave here this morning without it. One last thing in conclusion. This hope is so awesome that it cannot help but overflow with love 
and praise to God. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Why do we love God? Why does it begin with blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? Because of what he has given us. This hope that is so glorious. How can, how can, and and that, that only came about through Jesus going to the cross and dying to pay the penalty for our sins. You cannot help but say, God, I love you. Praise be to you. You are awesome. Let's pray. Today we celebrate the hope of eternal life that is rooted on a historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead. And the same spirit that brought Christ from the dead indwells us and will give life to our mortal bodies. God, I pray that uh, today you would just make that hope, uh, quicken that hope within us. For some people, today will be the day that they get born again into that living hope. And for those of us who are Christians, may, may it just um, be large in our lives from this day forth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Mm-hmm.